fascinating book, Ecclesiastes, that we've been uh, looking at. And we're reading this morning on a passage which concludes, really, a whole section of this book called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You'll know um, something of the flavor of Ecclesiastes if you've been here for the last few weeks. And uh, our author continues in similar vein what he's been doing for the last few chapters. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. They're chasing after the wind. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool and there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Perhaps we'll stop there. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to get into the mind of the teacher. To understand the things he's talking about. And see the world through his eyes. So, Lord, that we can understand this world better. So that we can know you better. So that we can live life as you call us to live it. Please then, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, open these words to our hearts and minds and souls and through them give us peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you seen Lord of the Rings? Yeah, a few nods anyway. I loved it. It's a great story of good and evil. The, the, the terrifying ugliness and power of the forces of evil was, was very vivid, wasn't it? 
Black Riders, the Orcs, the Balrog, the evil Lord Sauron, they, they seriously made my heart beat faster. But what particularly caught my attention was the character of young Frodo Baggins. For those who don't know the story, it focuses around a ring, a ring which confers supreme power on anybody who wears it. And because of that, this ring corrupts anyone who owns it. So the ring must be destroyed. The ring must be taken to, to the only place where it can be destroyed, the place where it was made, and thrown into the fires of Mount Doom. But who is going to be chosen to carry the ring? We're told that the ring uh, automatically gravitates towards the right person for that task. And all the powerful, heroic figures in the story are actually unsuitable to carry the ring because they will be corrupted. Even the good Gandalf. Now the bearer of the ring must be a member of a humble race of little people called the hobbits. Indeed, he must be, the, in fact, the most simple, ordinary, straightforward member of that race. That is young Frodo Baggins. Only Frodo can carry the ring which confers such power because only Frodo has no desire for that power. J.R.R. Tolkien knew something about life. Most of us, most of the time, like all the other characters in the Lord of the Rings, are in one way or another driven personalities. Some people that's very obvious. Their whole life is dominated by a drive for success and recognition. But frankly, in most of us, it is there but much more subtle. We are driven by the, the quest for satisfaction of our appetites, by the quest for recognition by other people, by the quest to succeed. So we've studied this book, Ecclesiastes. We've seen the author examining those, those drives which propel us forward, haven't we? We've, we've looked at our quest for pleasure, and he concluded that it was meaningless, futile, not satisfied. We saw him, we saw him turn then to, to wisdom. And he concluded the same there. Death kills both the wise and the fool. No better really is a wise person than a fool. He noticed then, remember, in chapter 3, that life has its rhythms, and that, he said, is beautiful. But then he ended up exasperated with those rhythms because we can't understand them, and anyway, they don't really work, he says, because injustice comes into the world, <coughs> and before injustice can be rectified according to life's natural rhythms, death cuts us off, and so we have an unjust world. Last week we saw how he started to realise that actually that injustice and oppression in the world 
was caused in part at least by his own envious nature. He was driven by envy, driven by his desires. His work, it, uh, his very work was actually a driven activity that led to oppression and inequality in the world. Oh, I saw all the labour and all the achievement that spring from man's envy of his neighbour. This too is meaningless, he said, a chasing after the wind. And this week he is going to pursue that theme further. This time he's not so much looking at our, our attitude to work, but at actually the, the, the root of ambition that underlies that. I hope by the end of this morning we, we will be able to see what uh, the teacher and J.R.R. Tolkien want to teach us. That the truly great people, the people who really God can use in this world, are the ordinary, humble Frodo Bagginses who've managed somehow to avoid the tyranny of ambition. First thing that the teacher wants to uh, tell us then in this section is actually life makes a mockery of ambition. Life makes a mockery of ambition. He paints a striking little picture in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Here is a king, he says. Perhaps once he was wise because he mentions that he no longer uh, knows how to take warning. But it seems that power has robbed this king of his teachability. The continent of Africa is filled with such stories. The stories of good men who when they came to power and as they grew older became foolish and unteachable. Partly because powerful people tend to attract around them sycophants. I think it was a spitting, spitting image in the 1980s who did a sketch which portrayed Margaret Thatcher with some prominent members of her cabinet um, eating at a restaurant. And the, the waiter said, uh, what would madam like to eat? And she said, I'll have beef, I'll beef. And uh, what about the vegetables, madam? She looked at the members of her cabinet and said, they'll have the same. <laughs> and in contrast to this king is a youth. He is poor, but he is wise. And his life, says the teacher, is infinitely to be preferred. But, he says in the next few verses, the cream always rises to the top. It's not entirely clear um, how these verses work, but I think this is the best interpretation of them. Verses 14 and 15 sort of gently let us in on the fact that this poor wise youth actually becomes king. He has come to the kingship, says verse 14. He is the king's successor, says verse 15. Perhaps actually the, uh, the teacher has two specific historical examples in mind when he pens uh, verse 14. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom because Joseph had risen from imprisonment to great power and King David rose from obscurity in Israel to the royal throne. Both of them were very able 
young and very ambitious young man. And such uh, young men, he says, do rise. <coughs> and they do gain followings at the expense of older rulers. Verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. But this, he says, is just part of an endless cycle. Verse 16, there was no end to all the people who were before them. And soon, he says, people will be end, end up, be fed up being fed up with their new hero, as John Major and William Hague, and soon Ian Duncan Smith will tell you all too uh, uh, painfully. Verse 16, those who came later were not pleased with the successor. So what did all that desperate climbing to the top mean? Verse 16 again. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. So one of the more, more ambitious men in history was Julius Caesar. In Shakespeare's play about him, his uh, erstwhile friend, Brutus, stabs him. Caesar lies dead, and Brutus proclaims, ambition's debt is paid. The harder we climb, the harder we fall. Let me say especially to some, some of you here who are younger, and many of you very able, it would be a pretty safe bet to say that you will rise in your chosen careers. That's not bad at all. But let me warn you very clearly how your life will go. Life is like climbing a hill. We toil towards the top to the cheers of admirers. And when we get up there and admire the view, we suddenly realize the only way now is down. And it is amazing how quickly we move from climbing the ladder to being over the hill. Indeed, it is entirely possible that you may never get to the top at all. It was uh, Michael Foote who famously said of a, of a fellow politician who had not been very successful in Parliament and then had been elevated to the Lords, I think. He said, he has passed from rising hope to elder statesman without any intervening period whatsoever. Well, that may be you. And if your self-worth, your main energies, the core of your being is bound up with the rising star of your career, then when it wanes and goes out, the darkness will be absolute. Life makes a mockery of ambition. The tragedy is that so many of us learn that too late. The second thing that uh, the teacher tells us is that actually ambition ruins our relationship with God. It's not entirely clear 
why he moves on to uh, talking about making sacrifices and making vows at the beginning of chapter 5. And uh, it has to be said that as um, we get into uh, Ecclesiastes chapters 6 to 11, uh, his thinking is really quite disjointed, and we will see that. But I think there is still some connection between uh, uh, each successive paragraph at this stage in the book. See, the, the point he's trying to make is that ambitious people often are tempted as well to do a deal with God. In the teacher's day, that would have been expressed um, sometimes in offering extra sacrifices or especially by making formal vows. And there's a famous case in the Bible, a case of Jephthah in the book of Judges. Jephthah vowed to God that if God gave him victory in a particular battle, then the first living thing that came out of his house would be sacrificed. And as he returned from the victory that God had given him, of course, it was his only daughter who came out to greet him. Perhaps the teacher had that in mind. And he said, guard your steps. Ambition combined with worship is actually a horrible thing. We come to listen to God, says the teacher, not to do deals, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Pagan gods are hungry for sacrifices. Pagan gods grant favours in gratitude if their worshippers feed them, he says. But the true God, the God of the Bible, does not need our sacrifices. And indeed, the fundamental thing he asks of us is that we go to listen to him. And we can't listen, he says, unless our mouth is firmly shut. Verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. And if we do make a solemn vow to God, he says, then be assured God holds us responsible for fulfilling it. Verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth run into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Some people use God, you see, as frankly little more than a patron for their own ambitions. And they say the most rash and silly things. Please, God, give me a well-paid job. Give me a nice house. Give me the perfect spouse. If you do that for me, God, then I will come and worship you at church, uh, in church every Sunday. What if he doesn't choose to give you those things? After all, he denied all of those things to his son, Jesus Christ. Will you then walk away from God? Is that all you came to him for? 
And what if he does give you all of those things, but you actually find that your joy in getting them is so great that you forget the vow? And then uh, you find that God is furious, both at your rejection of him, but in addition, at your uh, failure to keep a vow. There's actually a more spiritual version of this too. You don't always do deals with God just to, uh, um, just to get things that really quite obviously are only, uh, only temporal. Sometimes our deal with God goes like this. Okay, God, I accept that I must be a Christian, but please make me a successful one. I'll serve you, I will worship you with all of my life, but in return, I insist that you use my gifts in the most magnificent way, God. Let me be known as a great Christian leader. Let other Christians look up to me. Frankly, God, your kingdom needs someone like me, and I think we can do a deal to the benefit of both of us. And God says, you fool, be quiet. We don't come to God to do deals with him. We come to listen to him. He wants to take away some of the most, the things that are most precious to us. Will we listen? If he says that he has decided his kingdom is best served by burying us in complete obscurity all of our life, will we listen? What if he wants us to do something with our life that actually even our best friends will despise? Will we listen? Or will our ambitions, our dreams, drive us to bargain with God so that we never really live under his awesome authority? Verse 7. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore stand in awe of God. Again, let me say, one of the exciting things that we have amongst us in the church is that we have a growing number of very able and committed young Christians. Many of you, especially, will move around in church, in different churches and mix in wider evangelical circles. I want to warn you that vain ambition is a terrible reality amongst evangelical Christians. There are career structures. There is much dreaming and many words. And if you are able and ambitious, it is possible to gain a reputation for yourself and never really to have listened to God. Never really to have stood in awe of God. That can happen at a local level. That can happen more widely. And we are called to stand before the absolute Lord, who is Lord of your life and mine, and to listen only to him.
He can and he will do with us whatever he wants. We can't predict it. We can't do deals with him about it. We can only say, take my life and use it in whatever way you choose to do, God. If we do anything else, we ruin our relationship with God and invite his anger. Ambition damages our relationship with God, says the teacher. Then he says, ambition corrupts society too. Verse 8 of chapter 5. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. <coughs> I think it was Ogden Nash who wrote, Great fleas have lesser fleas upon their backs to bite them, and lesser fleas have lesser fleas, and so ad infinitum. And great fleas have greater fleas, and greater fleas to grow on, and greater fleas, and greater fleas, and greater fleas, and so on. Society is one heap of parasites, says the teacher. It is a whole ecosystem of them. And at the top are the biggest bloodsuckers of all, verse 9. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. You know, the teacher wouldn't have been remotely surprised that the that top executive salaries are rising at a far greater rate than the wages of ordinary workers in this country. Ambition, he says, has an endless appetite. Whoever loves money, verse 10, never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This is meaningless. John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money it took to make a man happy. He answered, just a little bit more. And those who power their way to the top actually find when they get there, they are filled with anxiety. Far more anxiety than a simple, unambitious person. The sleep of a labourer is sweet, verse 12 whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Wealth can make its owner miserable while they have it. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. As Nicholas van Hoogstrachen, the, uh, the uh, millionaire property tycoon who's now due to stand trial for murder has found out. And wealth can make us miserable because we lose it as well. I have seen uh, 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 grievous evil under the sun, verse 14, wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when, when he has a son there is nothing left for him. As John Resnick, the trader who lost $750 million for the Allied Irish Bank this week, discovered. And anyway, says the teacher, death robs us of it all. Verse 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. This too is grievous evil, 
As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Such is the nature of human society, he says. That's what drives human society. A whole set of parasitic relationships fueled by ambition, which is measured in finance, which is all meaningless. And that society is deeply corrupted by it. We need to be aware of that as believers here. If we're going to stand aside from uh, uh, this habit in society, we will have to be different. We may find ourselves more often being the labourer rather than the person at the top. Because frankly the cost of driving ourselves to the top is too great for our souls. Certainly we will have to be different, driven by different forces than the world around us. Because frankly they are driven by forces which corrupt everything. Society, our relationship with God, everything. So how should we live then? If you've uh, been following Ecclesiastes, you will know he is pursuing familiar themes, themes that he comes back to again and again. But I think the fact that he does come back to them means that we need to hear them and think about them again and again. And he starts exploring in verses uh, eight, verse 18 of chapter 5 to chapter 6, verse 9, some of the uh, uh, half-answers that he's beginning to get about how we should live. The first element I just want to pick out to you is that we should enjoy life as a gift. Then I realised, he said, he's had a flash of inspiration, verse 18, it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. What a beautiful picture. And a picture that, uh, um, uh, up to a point, Christians should appropriate for themselves. One of his very, very uh, important themes that since this drive to achieve so much in the world is, is futile, is useless, we need to learn to live life as a gift from God. God gives us life. God gives us all that we need to live on. God gives us the career that we have, whatever it is. And we need to be satisfied in that. There is a sense in which we need to rest. What is life if full of care? We have not time to stop and stare. 
We need to enjoy life as a gift. Life, in the end, is not something that we are to go out and grab for ourselves. A lot of commentators that say that one of the, one of the themes of uh, Ecclesiastes is, is what they say, carpe diem, seize the day. I think he's saying exactly the opposite. He's saying, receive the day as a gift from God and be satisfied. So you want to be rich? Why? You want to be successful? Why? You want a better paid job? Why? Why on earth do you want those? The sunshine that was shining on us today as we came to church was absolutely free. I wonder whether Will, the pop idol, is actually, uh, despite all the riches that he's going to get, going to be more happy than the blackbird that was singing in my garden this morning. I wonder whether he can sing any better as well. <laughs> I, wa I wonder whether, in fact, one of the most important elements of our witness as Christian is, will be, in fact, to discover contentment. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11 says, Make it your ambition. Ah, Christians should have an ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you. Receive life as a gift. But then the second conclusion that we need to come to is in many senses the complete opposite of what the teacher comes to. We need to come to the conclusion, look forward to heaven. Sadly, the teacher doesn't quite get that far. From extolling the good life as a gift at the end of chapter 5, he then again as has happened again and again, plunged, plunges back into the trials and injustices of this world. He's saying uh, at the end of chapter 5 about enjoying the good things God gives and, and seldom having enough time to think because we're occupied with gladness of heart. And then he says in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, I've seen another evil under the sun. It weighs heavily on me. God gives a man wealth, possessions and honour so that he lacks nothing in his, his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. And a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. And once again, as we've seen before, his conclusion about life is incredibly dark. Verse 3, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, no matter how long he lives. If he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, in darkness, its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place? Well, teacher, no, all do not go to the same place. The New Testament makes it very, very plain that there is a resurrection after death, that there is a new heaven and a new earth 
there is the prospect for those who have faith in Jesus Christ to enjoy an eternity of satisfaction. There is indeed the opportunity to enjoy treasure for and prosperity forever if we have invested in the right place. See, uh, these uh, poor people who may have been Christians, whom God, to whom God gives wealth, but they cannot enjoy them, will not be disappointed if they have faith in Christ. Because they never will have set their, their uh, heart on wealth in this world. They will have always had as their deepest and most precious longing the treasures of heaven. And they will have been investing in it. The teacher shows us so clearly, doesn't he? That though there is a sense in which we should rejoice in the good things God gives us in this world, we will not really have satisfaction until we see the final resolution in the New Jerusalem. That's why Jesus tells us, just after warning his disciples not to store up their treasure on earth, he tells us to cultivate contentment. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, the body more important than clothes? But look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God will look after us well enough in this world without running after this world. If we seek first his kingdom, if we invest in eternity, and he will keep us content now and rejoicing forever. People who live like that are actually incredibly useful to God. They are like that little character Frodo Baggins. They are the only ones whom God actually will entrust the great task of building his kingdom to. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you frankly and confess our sins. We are driven people, driven by the wrong motivations. And we know how futile that is. We know how 
that actually alienates us from you. But still we do it, Lord. We take a moment to confess before you now. And we'll ask, we ask, Lord, that you will remake us as content people. As people who rejoice in the good things you give us. And people who are prepared to wait till the day of the resurrection to finally enjoy the great riches, the riches of your grace that you offer us. Help us to be people like the Apostle Paul who can rejoice and say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Amen.